So the building is actually built around the product, I guess you could say. And in terms of security, the layers of security, the thought process, uh, nothing, you know, nothing was done just to look good. It was really built like with the gold being the central aspect of the building and, and build it outwards and design it outwardly. But it's our second vault in Cayman. We outgrew the previous vault, which you guys have visited before. So everything is new and shiny and exciting right now. And uh, we're looking forward to filling this place up again. Hello, and welcome to the Resolve Rifts Investment Podcast, where the science of investing meets real world application. Join Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Richard Latterman of Resolve Asset Management as they bring their extensive investment experience to bear on deep dives into the current market trends, optimal portfolio construction, and risk management techniques helping animate the world of quantitative investing with a global macro perspective. This podcast is a must-listen for professional capital allocators seeking to navigate the complexities of global markets with skill and confidence. Welcome to the journey. Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. All opinions expressed by the principals are their own and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right, here we are with um, Mark Yaxley and the rest of the Resolve crew. You'll recognize Rodrigo and Mike a little further away than usual because today we're filming from inside the Strategic Wealth Preservation Vault with um, Mark Yaxley of SWP Hosting. You'll see the uh, actual real gold bars directly behind us. And um, so I think this is going to be a really different and uh, pretty novel and interesting episode. So Mark, let's start off with what is SWP and um, how did you guys come about? Yeah, well, first of all, guys, welcome to our Cayman Islands Vault. Uh, we've never actually done this kind of format inside the vault before, so it's pretty exciting to be with you. SWP came about, actually, was an idea that was born around 2010. Uh, there was a family here in the Cayman Islands that had been invested in gold and silver for a long time. And they recognized that Cayman had a little bit of everything in terms of financial services. Obviously, companies like your own, you had the banks. And they're like, you know what? This island could really use a gold vault. And that's kind of when the idea was born. And fast forward about four or five years of planning, uh, doing market research to see what else was out there in other offshore jurisdictions in particular, uh, we opened our doors in 2015 to the public. Yeah. Fantastic. Amazing. The Christmas edition in silver and gold, baby. Right. It couldn't it get is. more festive than this. I mean, it is a pretty spectacular, um, just the facility itself is, as you guys built it basically a few months ago, it's been done, right? So it's, it's top of the line. It seems like a MI2 movie. Yeah. This building is custom built for this purpose, right? It is. So the building is actually built around the product, I guess you could say. And in terms of security, the layers of security, the thought process, uh, nothing, you know, nothing was done just to look good. It was really built like with the gold being the central aspect of the building and, and build it outwards and design it outwardly. But it's our second vault in Cayman. We outgrew the previous vault, which you guys have visited before. So everything is new and shiny and exciting right now. And uh, we're looking forward to filling this place up again. We propose to film us walking in through all the different security um, protocols and then realize that probably don't want to give away all of the uh, security steps. 
That's pretty neat. So hard no, we're like we're this is a secret location, really. <laughs> That's true. I know you guys are excited. Yeah, I'm I'm super that. excited. This is amazing. <laughs> so how does SWP differ from other ways that people have typically and historically bought gold bullion? Yeah, I mean the biggest USP for SWP is the Cayman Islands. I mean, we're the only precious metals dealer and obviously the only storage facility like this in the Cayman Islands. And the advantages that the, this jurisdiction provides to clients, not only for those who choose to store here, but also those who transact through the company and store it elsewhere in the world, that extra layer of privacy uh, and confidentiality is very valuable to some people. And I, I'd say that's really where the, this, the unique selling points for this company begin. And obviously we try to treat people well you know, everybody says that, but we actually treat our clients like human beings, not numbers. It's a, it's a long-term proposition. When you run a gold business, you know, you're not in it for a quick buck, you know, so you don't nickel and dime your clients. You don't, you know, you don't bend them over. You treat them well, and you hope that they and their families stay with you for a long time. Yeah, yeah and it, it's, a, it's amazing to see an actual physical bearer asset in form, in its secure location, with bars that are numbered in a way that guarantees that your bar is your bar. It, it really is something that it's, it's almost a, a days of your thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the whole, what was it? The thirties when no, no safety deposit box in the, in the U S would be open without an IRS agent present, those types of things. And, and today we're in this digital world where everything gets digitized and can be rehypothecated and whatnot. But then you see the the granddaddy of them all, the 5,000-year sort of first physical bearer asset in, in modern finance. It is a, it's a surreal experience, yeah, to be it, honest. It is pretty old school, you know, and, and, and to some people, that's not attractive. That's not sexy. It's not flashy. You know, digital, digital assets obviously tend to be, you know, top of mind and, and top of conversation, but there's a lot of people that still enjoy uh, saving their money this way. Digital assets, not your keys, not your coins. I mean, part of the whole world of digital asset revolves around the fact that you have a finite, you know, in the Bitcoin sense, you have a finite number of these things that will be created. And you, through this other mechanism of accounting and tracking, have real ownership of that thing. So it's it's sort of everything that's old is new again. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the idea of custodying your securities and your certificates and just holding them in street name at the brokerage house. I mean, when I entered this business, people were still bringing in certs. Like you'd have a cert, they'd have it at home, they'd get their dividend checks. And they, those people were products of the depression and of an era where banks failed and things failed and having your assets held in some other name other than your own didn't actually work. And so it's just really interesting that what's old becomes sort of new again. And it, it's a layer of security that's, that's very, um, it, it's very meaningful in, in the, the accumulation or storage of your wealth. And I think that idea of wealth preservation is much more poignant for third world countries. Uh, I'm Peruvian. I know how important physical things are to them, whether it's owning real estate, owning businesses that they know they have control over and owning precious metals. Um, Bitcoin's become a huge thing because of the inability to transact across borders, right? So that's one of the things that I think is a good use case for the cryptocurrencies, maybe the only use case in, in a lot of cases. But 
the the ability to physically own things is it's much more important in places like let's take Argentina right now for example right where you have inflation over 100% and no end in sight maybe Malay is going to do something about it soon but the the reality is that how do you the only way to maintain your any sort of purchasing power is by owning hard assets and this is an important aspect of it in a way that in a financialized world in the western countries it it continues to be a struggle to, to when i ask a room of people how many of you have over five percent of gold in your portfolios and nobody raises their hand how many do you own any physical gold and only a handful continue mm. to raise it it's like we've forgotten that anything could go wrong. Um, but if you look at history, it's so clear that, you know, there's always a place for that diversifier. And it is, excuse my language, an in case shit type yeah. of thing that you actually want to have, right? What happens if and when you need hard assets, um, real estate being one of them, but then, you know, there's what is the added benefit away from real estate? Maybe I can ask you. Um, in terms of the fungibility of gold bars and physical gold when you let's say something does happen what, what do you see the the easy way for people to access and their gold and precious metals wealth for transactions well i mean gold is is very liquid and i think that's one misconception that people don't have especially physical gold they know etfs are liquid right but they may not understand that you can buy and sell physical metal just as easily these days with the use of technology and you know online shopping carts or you know just picking up the phone and emailing your your dealer broker you can do that so in terms of liquidity in a crisis or a crunch you can access cash really quickly and these days companies like ours will even couple that with cryptocurrency so if you want to get paid in crypto we can do that so from a liquidity standpoint you know certainly not an issue i think just going back to what you were saying previously about crises and such really the positioning for gold is wealth insurance as a you know a general positioning and and why do people own this stuff and i think you know there are much better ways to make money and i certainly we never advise anybody to buy gold to make money which sounds weird to a lot of investors that you have to get over that hurdle first return of capital yeah exactly but a lot of our clients especially wealthy clients who have already earned a lot of money through their businesses through their other investments at at that particular stage in life all they want to do is preserve that money and when gold really, obviously, some some historical examples, 2008 financial crisis, COVID crisis, that's when gold really surges and helps protect the overall value of their portfolio as a as a true diversifier, because there's not many asset classes like gold, mm-hmm. and it really does hedge well in a crisis situation. Whereas the real estate market in 08 took a hit as well. So yeah. even if you owned a home, mm-hmm. you know, you took a pretty big hit. But and I think in the in the if you think about it through the lens of also a market capitalization perspective. If you think about, well, I have the S&P and I'm diversified. Well, if you look in the S&P, there, there isn't much in the way of metals and mining producers as a percentage of the market cap. It's, I think, less than 1%. It's very, very small. Even oil and gas is only 5%. So here you have, uh, in the context of this uh, insurance asset, this return of capital, this solid asset, and then you look across your traditional portfolio and if you're just considering those financial assets, well, you're extremely underexposed from a global asset perspective as a market cap of what's precious metals. Maybe is it 10 trillion, something like that in, in market cap? And if we sort of say there's 100 trillion in global assets generally, that's maybe 10%, maybe double it, it's 200 and it's 5%. You're just not getting any of that exposure through sort of traditional market cap 
type um, um, holdings, whether they include international stocks or not. And and um, so on top of that, you have this kind of lack of insurance from a, just a, just looking at it from a global market perspective. But but I'll, I'm just looking up right now. So from March 31st, 1973, I guess that's when cold went free floating. It's no shrinking violet in terms of nominal returns, right? You got a sharp ratio of 0.4 annualized return of 6% for gold. Um, now, I, it seems to me that this is above the risk-free rate long-term. So it's also providing some sort of real return above cash from what I'm seeing here anyway. And because of its unique non-correlation from a portfolio construction perspective, that rebalancing premium that you get from matching it up with bonds, with equities, maybe other commodities, you you actually, it, it becomes a, a another piston to a portfolio engine that can actually smooth out the ride a little bit more, mm. right? So it is you get you're getting an excess return in a portfolio basis from non-correlation you're getting that security you're getting that that place of last resort in case everything else goes down your bank goes down you can't get access to it and uh and you can walk into your vault and pick it up and start i guess uh you know shaving it off to, to start transacting in the zombie well, apocalypse not all bars are this large so right. you can go into smaller denominations and that's probably a, another misconception that's worth mentioning at least is the people, you know, when you, you you mentioned earlier, you were in a room of 100 people and you said, how many people invest in physical gold? And I think there's a misconception that you have to be extremely wealthy to invest in gold. Yeah. It's obviously not true. I mean, you know, an ounce of gold only costs 2,000 US dollars, an ounce of silver is $25. So the entry point is $25 US to be in the precious metal space. Um, so again, you know, that's just a lack of education in general. And 100 years ago, this conversation would have been totally different because people carried gold as money in their pockets, but like you said, right. we've forgotten. I so, do, I do think that there are lots of people who recognize the value of gold as being something completely different than anything else in their portfolio, and there are other ways to get access to exposure to gold. Right. So, you know, through the GLD ETF or through gold futures, etc. But unsurprisingly, I know Mark, you've done some research on the pros and cons of some of these other ways of getting access to gold, even sort of just going to your local bank and um, and getting exposure, buying some some bullion from them, right? So maybe just walk us through some of those different options so that people understand what the trade-offs are. Yeah, or Costco more recently. Yeah, right. Obviously, we can talk about oh, that really? a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, up in Canada, they sold out. Uh, they had a two-bar maximum. Now we brought it up. So Costco announced that they were in the gold business. You could order online, so you couldn't go to the store and get it. You do, did get your 2% cash back, though, which was also very attractive. But they maxed it at uh, two bars per client, and they sold out, and it was headlines all over the place. But two bars of what? Uh, one ounce gold bars. One ounce yeah, gold bars. Yeah, but the, which was a really great headline for the gold business. You know, obviously, anytime a major retailer you know steps up and, and starts creating waves, that's great. But the truth is, major retailers like Walmart have carried gold for a long time. So it's not really new. It's just that Costco did it for the first time. But Walmart carries it. Yeah, in the states. Yeah, that's you can order gold idea. online. No idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. eBay, Amazon, any major retailer, you can find gold and silver. Um, but to your point, I mean, for you know, a lot of people look at the mining stocks, and I don't, I don't follow the mining space very, very closely. But my advice, having had dinners and many drinks with guys who are in the space, is nine out of ten of those juniors are dogs. And if you don't know what you're doing, you are going to lose money. So either pay someone who knows what they're doing, or do your homework. So for for most average investors, I think trying to pick. Stock pick miners is a very risky way of, of getting exposure to gold. ETFs make a lot more sense 
in terms of usability, you know, cost of entry. Uh, if you have a shorter uh, term that you're trying to capitalize on, on on the precious metals market, you know, three to six months, you know, I've used ETFs definitely. I think it's a great way to do how it. How are those? How do those ETFs custody gold? This is this is where I was going with this. So after many many years of people asking me what's better, ETFs, physical? Why would I buy physical and pay you guys storage when I could just do it through the ETF? I read the fine print, and it was it was lengthy. It was a deep read. I was on a long flight somewhere, and I said, "Finally, I'm going to do this." And uh, what really struck me, obviously, the 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 funds themselves try to de-risk themselves and de-expose themselves from any kind of potential, you know, third-party <laughs> risk. But what it really boiled down to, and what caught my attention, Adam, is that a lot of the risk was shifted to the custody custodian, and in this case, the custodian was a very large financial institution in the U.S. One that did not have a good reputation when it came terms in terms of managing physical metal because they had run a desk for many, many years and that desk had actually closed because they did a horrendous job and they had lost a lot of physical metal that belonged to people. And when I saw that name at the bottom of the fine print that they were the ones ultimately responsible for, the, for taking care of the underlying asset, I became very concerned. And if you're an investor and you think, I'm doing this to save myself a quarter point or half a point you know, on my cost of entry versus physical gold, you're like, is it really worth that added risk of dealing with a large American financial institution whom you know is not going to fully allocate and segregate that metal? Mm-hmm. They're going to loan it, lease it, commingle it. They're going to do what they can to make money from that under underlying asset. So, so because this is this is the <laughs> this is the part that I think people uh, misunderstand and and would love some clarity on. So, you hear these stories of a person that thought he owned gold at a certain bank goes and, and tries to grab it, and they simply do not have those inventories, mm-hmm. right? The rehypothecation. Um, you, you say the banks are going to do all these things. If everybody goes to the bank at once and tries to withdraw their gold, mm. what tends to happen? Like, what, what is the outcome? I mean, all I can do is share stories that I've heard through my time in the industry. Um, I've never worked for a bank or been privy to how they manage their, their gold bullion inventory, other than having audited the very same financial institution that I won't name <laughs> for, for fear of what could happen. But um, I did do an audit of that vault when I was a very young man. And uh, a true story, we found a wood coin in their inventory that belonged to our company within their vaults. And I'm like, okay, if you've got a wood coin that's infiltrated your inventory, we've got problems. And that's just goes to show how little they actually cared. You know, they cared about what the balance sheet looked like and they cared about that bottom line, but they certainly didn't care about the quality of the products. Another story that I can tell you is that I worked for a large precious metals dealer prior to coming over here to SWP and they had what's called a pool program. So this is where basically it's unallocated gold. So as a client, you pay a very low premium over the spot price, but you sign away any kind of allocation and segregation of the asset in your name. And you're basically saying, I'm comfortable with this company maintaining a position of ounces. What that position is, is very undefined. It could be scrap metal that's going to a refinery. So it's in transit, hasn't even been melted yet. We think we have so many ounces. We've got futures contracts. We might have a, you know, a spot price hedge in place. Basically, what, whatever total ounces they held as a company, that was their promise to you. But when this company got in some trouble for owing some tax money to the government, all of a sudden, that property and who that property belonged to became a really big deal. And if you're a client, basically a creditor of this company, you're now saying to myself, don't I wish I had paid half a percent more to have a bar on a shelf with my name on it or in a box that belongs okay. to me? So, so let's <laughs> unpack that. Very, very similar to a brokerage house goes down. And your securities are at the brokerage house and the accounts a margin account. 
and your securities now commingled, and now they fall under bankruptcy law, and they are not your assets anymore versus having this you know, accounted for. Maybe you will walk, you can walk through the actual process here of how it works and how it's accounted for so that people know that Bar has your, your name on it almost. Yeah. But yeah. So before ahead, we do that, I just yeah. want to, because that's an interesting case. I hadn't thought about that, right? So you have a company that pools these assets. You mentioned there's gold coming from scrap metal, gold or whatever that you, if you wait long enough, you're going to get that. Mm-hmm. You have a futures contract that if you wait long enough, you should get delivery of that. And then you have, you know, other methods that, that you might've mentioned. Now, if the company's financials, because you're doing all those derivatives trades, there are, I guess, tax issues that you then have to account for. These, these negative externalities that you have to account for that might affect your cash flow negatively. And then you have to, as a company, come up with the money, um, I guess. And it might in, infringe into the assets of your, of your owners, right? So yeah, I kind of see the dangers there of having those pool assets. In contrast to that, how does a fully segregated company work? Like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty boring, actually. It's pretty vanilla. It's, it's so when you buy any particular product, so let's say uh, one ounce Royal Canadian Mint Maple Leaf coin, you know, it's for the second best selling coin in the world. So you say, I want 10 of those coins. You buy them from a company like ours. We're not the only ones out there. A lot of people do this. You actually get a tube of physical coins or 10 coins in there. And then that tube is placed in a bin, which behind us here, you can see some of these segregated bins. They belong to individual clients, they're sealed, they have a license plate on them. So we say it's fully allocated because we've got the 10 coins that you purchased and it's fully segregated in the sense it's segregated from your neighbor's holdings. What's most important here, and I was gonna raise this before Mike, is it's considered personal property under the law. So this isn't on the company's books. This isn't asset and you know offsetting liability on the company's books. It is personal property that belongs to our client. So if something, if we mismanage our company, mismanage funds, whatever it might be, the government, says we owe them tax money, whatever the case is, it's very easy to prove that that asset belongs to our client. And it's so very easy for the, to, yeah. the stakeholders or the, the shareholders of the company are on the hook, not the clients of the, of the company. Yeah. And even further so, if the, if the company were to go bankrupt, it's not an asset on their books anyway. So it's not subject to, to creditors at all. So it makes things very, very clean. But again, for that, you have to pay a little bit more for your physical bars and coins. You have to pay a little bit in storage. And, and that's the decision ultimately that people have to make. But, and I don't know if this is a good jumping off point for the for some of the programs you have here to actually, if you did as an owner of gold personal property at SWP where you could do some loaning of that um, asset where at least you're the one deciding on that and you're the one actually um, receiving the benefit rather than having it commingled with some other organization who at best may give you free storage, right? So right, it's kind of, it reminds me of the, the, the social media story, right? If, if you're not paying for the app, you're the product, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? right? Exactly. So if you're not paying for your storage, whatever you're storing is being used on your behalf and they're making a profit. So it's kind of that catch 22 where at least you have a program. Maybe you could go into that. Do you feel comfortable sure. chatting about that and just kind of like it up, but at least specifically you decide and you would you would prosper to the extent you want to. You, you've nailed it, Mike. I mean, that's exactly why companies offer these things. The banks and refineries do it best. In fact, we had an offer recently where a large refinery, we had a client similar to someone who holds about this much gold. They were looking to do something and the refinery said, oh, just move it to our London vault. We'll pay you 75 bips. So you'll pay 
us or our client 75 bips to move his gold into your vault. How does that work? How does it, what are you going to be doing? Well, obviously they're going to monetize it, right? So they don't hide it very well. But uh, to your point, that's exactly what they're up to, whether it be a pool account or whether it be a large refinery. Um, and where were we going with this? You wanted to oh, just lending. Just, yeah, so, the lending. So you guys do have some programs so, too. Yeah, we do have a program here. I won't spend a lot of time talking about it. But if you do uh, hold fully allocated, fully segregated gold or silver with us, you can borrow cash against that. So we match the borrower or our client with a lender. Um, and usually they're one-year terms. Um, loan to value ratio is 75%. Um, so there's very little risk to the, uh, to the lender. Uh, because they know the underlying asset is gold and silver and we we have margin calls in place to to protect them and the borrower you know with questions free you know simple application a lot less troublesome than going to a bank for a loan a lot faster than Aaron came in uh they can borrow up 75 percent of the value of their metal right yeah so this is private loans private individuals yeah. are making those exactly things. i see interesting yeah as opposed to again is to revisit how this is typically done um at a bank um your gold is commingled and the bank is going to loan against, you know, well, the, yeah. the bank's going to, you know, commingle the gold as assets on their balance sheets and, and then they'll make a loan against their balance sheet. And so there's no segregation on either side, whereas this is a private ring. So, yeah. Yeah. That's neat. <clears throat> well, what's the client mix here? Is it, is there, uh, is it all retail? Is there retail in some institutions? Are there funds that store their gold here or in other vaults around the world that you guys have arrangements with not not to mention any names obviously that that'd be upside but what's that institutional retail mix heavily retail um i would say 90 percent retail we've got some trusts in here some foundations very little institutional business institutions in terms of gold tend to look for exposure in other ways mm-hmm. um and that's just you know a different mentality it's a different crowd um, and uh, so they tend to stick to their own. You know, they'll go to the financial institutions as custodians for for metal in general. Okay. Uh, and there's, you know, again, there's. I'm not not, not going to say that's the, the the unwise choice for them. They have those relationships. But uh, here in Cayman, also, this isn't. It's not a COMEX or an LBMA approved facility, which means all the metal that is stored here is outside the chain of custody. They call it. Um, so yeah, most of those in, those funds will use. Uh, um, vaults that are that are COMEX and LBMA approved. And also, so then how does gold re-enter the system? Is there a testing process? How does, it, like, so, so there's gold bars behind me, they now go, you know, someone decides to sell them, there's to stay, whatever. They re-enter the, what did you call it? What was, chain of custody. The chain of custody. Yeah, chain of custody. So there's an agreement amongst certain financial institutions and members of the LBMA and the COMEX that They've decided that the Brinks facility in Jamaica, New York would be considered a COMEX approved facility. And so anything that enters that facility and doesn't leave would be considered within the chain. So in the case of these 400 ounce gold bars, if they were to be repurposed or try to re-enter the chain, they'd actually have to be melted, recast by uh, an approved refinery and then deposited into one of those facilities. So that's another reason, you know, and Cayman is not, you know, it's not a hub. This is a long-term storage depot. This is the offshore side of the world side of the coin yeah so what about uh, i know that you guys have arrangements with other vaults globally so is there a way to kind of send your gold to somebody else or simply do a swap you're in i don't know germany want to take out some some of your gold bars and yeah there's a there's a program there yeah two ways to do it you can either ship it so you do that through common carriers like UPS or FedEx. And I know people shudder immediately. Like, oh, FedEx guy left at my front door. 
It's fully insured, um, adult signature required, all those kinds of things. We only ship to the United States and Canada. We don't ship via FedEx to many countries because of corruption, border, you know, issues at the border, criminality, all that stuff. We'll also deliver to any vault around the world. So any vault within, you know, a recognizable network will deliver to. But the easiest way to do it is the location swap. So right. if you had a 400 ounce gold bar here in Cayman and you wanted the e- equivalent amount of ounces in, in Singapore, we'll do a we buy transaction here. We'll buy it from you with the proceeds. We'll sell you the gold in Singapore. It's a very easy way to do a transaction. And you, you, you know, one of the, the benefits for the client is they avoid, you know, what our clients would consider a paper trail where metal is flowing out of one country into a new country. They kind of, you know, they, they like privacy and confidentiality, so we can execute that swap for them. So one imagines that if I grab my gold bar, put it in my pocket, and head to the airport, uh, you have to you have more than $10,000 worth of uh, currency. But there's no issue taking my bar from here somewhere else with the exception of the fact that I'm probably going to be on a list somewhere. Um, is there? Like if I, if I walk in with a bar into Canada and... It's personal property. Another beautiful thing about personal property is as the owner of that personal property, you have very strong, uh, you know, from a legal perspective, you have a lot of support in your benefit. The government has no title to your personal property without, you know, doing, you know, if you had committed a crime and they could tie it to a proceeds of crime. But I've traveled with gold and silver many, many times in my career. I actually enjoy doing it once in a while, just get kind of the rush of retesting the system. Like, what are they going to ask me? What forms are I going to fill out? How difficult is this? And generally, it's very simple. And they they know your rights. I mean, these guys are, if there's one thing that the customs guys are trained for, is they know when you're in, within your rights. And, uh, you know, I've done it at JFK, New York, one of the roughest airports to enter. You know, you're entering the United States. They treat you, you know, like garbage. And then, you know, you're like, oh, I have over $10,000 worth of gold bars in my backpack. And they're like, well, let's go have a chat. And honestly, they take a look at it. They're like, where are you going? Going home to Canada. It's personal property. They're like, okay, have a good day. Thanks for, thanks for letting us know. So if you don't declare it and then they find it, that's when you, you're going to have a longer conversation. And so, and so the fact that, yeah. (laughs) So now that you're stopped all the time for no apparent reason at customs, (laughs) you still think it's a good idea. I'm not actually, believe it or not. I, I I don't have that problem. Usually security, when you go through security, it's going to come up on the x-ray machine as a very dense material in your backpack. And that's really the point where you're going to have the longest delay. Right. Is the security guy's going to want to check your bag? And she, she or he or she doesn't have any idea what they're looking at. So you right. usually have to tell them what it is. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, the fascinating world of, of traveling with gold. Would it be any different with currency Do you, that you know of? Probably be the same process. No, you just have to declare it. It's the same thing on that uh, declaration form. Usually it says uh, cash or equivalent, which, you know, in most places they consider gold or silver an equivalent. Yeah. And platinum, palladium, uh, silver. It's private property. It's well. private property. You have to know, though, in most countries, uh, those are considered industrial metals because they have industrial applications. You know, silver has many. Platinum, palladium, obviously, is almost exclusively for industrial purposes. So generally subject to VAT. In Europe, it would be like 12 or 22%, I think. Um, Cayman has a 22% tariff on uh, palladium and, and platinum. Uh, bar. So again, you just need to do a little bit of homework before you show up with. Uh, okay. So those those matters. So silver as well is uh, in the industrial side. In certain countries, in, yeah. certain in Europe, countries. in the EU, it's considered an industrial metal. And so that that attracts the uh, the industrial side of it in the VAT uh, tax. So only gold is the actual currency. Gold is very rarely taxed in most countries. Actually, I say that with a big asterisk. Yeah. So that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. that's um, that's again a use another yeah. incredible use case that humanity has 
put around gold is a unique asset class. Uh, I mean, absolutely fascinating. Well, what's the mix for SWP in those? Uh, are you allowed to say approximately? Do you platinum, palladium, silver? Is there? It's, it's uh, inside this wallet. If you looked around, you'd probably think it's mostly silver, uh, but it's about eighty percent gold, seventeen uh, percent silver, and three percent platinum, palladium. On a value basis. On a value basis, yeah. In terms of, of ounces, definitely silver would uh, right. be. Yeah. yeah. So just out of curiosity for the group here, do, when you think back as to the, the properties that gold has that has made it as prominent as it has for society as a whole, do we have any idea why gold or anything else? Like, is there a strong case for it or is it an emergent phenomenon? Is this, you're talking about like the 6,000 years of progression of gold or why why was gold so important until about 100 years ago well you guys you guys this is a round easy one i mean one of them is it's it's an asset that doesn't uh, deteriorate easily uh gold doesn't rust for example uh you you know you you find you see those hidden treasures at the bottom of the ocean they pop open the crate and it still looks like gold you're like that's amazing it hasn't deteriorated in any form so obviously it has longevity which is one attribute uh malleable malleable can be broken fungible yeah um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny now they call crypto or, or, or specifically Bitcoin kind of digital gold. I find that really amusing because they love hating on the gold guys, but then they're like, they go and steal it and they actually put a little gold coin with Bitcoin stamped on the front of it. I'm like, it's good marketing. Yeah. And I think the other one is that it happened to be kind of spread out around the Earth's crust in, in every area of the world, mm-hmm. right? So it became a ubiquitous metal that you could mine. Still fairly rare. Still, still yeah, it's still yeah. fairly rare. I mean, it, it is a little bit unnerving when you watch documentaries about how much Earth they have to destroy or really, you know, destroy the planet to get in. And obviously, nobody likes seeing that. But uh, it's not why I got into the business, but definitely become a reality as I, I've learned more about that industry. It is destructive. Uh, well, I mean, it's, yeah, lithium. I mean, being Canadian, we've seen a few tailing ponds and oil and gas and um, all those types of things. So, but low melting point, definitely, that's yeah. a that's a useful feature. And then, of course, the um, amount that's mined every year is a vanishingly small fraction of the, the total amount that's above ground, right? So there's just no dilution over time, right? And it's almost used, it's not used hardly at all for industrial purposes, right? No. A, that's a great point in, in, in sort of um, maybe addressing specifically the idea of that, you know, stock to flow type of thing. And the fact that the money supply changes in far greater, um, magnitudes than does that. So if if we're going to double the money supply in the world, we didn't double the number of these gold bars. Mm -hmm. And so that has some implications for the price long-term, which is probably why over 6,000 years, again, that durability, that ability to be uh, malleable, uh, the ubiquitousness around the world tends to uh, put a governor on or, or, you know, as we, as we go through the fiat currency world, I mean, this is, this is the appeal. It's just not easy to replicate. And a key reserve for any major serious um, political power, right? Mm-hmm. So that everybody has a little bit of gold. Well, it's amazing that, 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 that uh, political powers or the reserve banks of the world have been acquiring more gold of, of late. You know, it's yeah. the old, what's old is new again. So let's talk a little bit about the influences of the price of gold, if we can unpack some of that. Have you, you guys, I, I know you're mostly on physical and trying to, to provide a service, but what are the drivers of gold, broadly speaking? And then maybe we can get into what yeah. we've seen recently. 
Yeah, I'll just kick off the conversation with a few talking points. So from a production standpoint, it is fairly stable year, year to year. It might fluctuate 2%, 5%, give or take, but it's it's very stable. Obviously, the market determines how much activity the mining, the market price will determine how active mining companies are and so on. Central bank buying has really been the key headline in the last year, providing a floor for the gold price. So China, Russia, some Middle, Middle Eastern central banks are loading up and the, from the commentary I read, it's really based on you know geopolitical risk. So you've got, obviously you've got a major conflict in Europe. Now you have a second conflict in the Middle East. You've got the BRIC countries, you know, becoming more influential potentially. You know, maybe closer to home in the states. You've got an election coming up. So all these things factor into central banks and why they might accumulate these assets on their balance sheets. And that's really been what's, or I should say, supported the price of gold even in raising interest rate, you know, environment that we saw, which is typically really bad for gold. That's a lot of pressure on gold. Um, so that's that's one thing that's definitely influencing the price right now. When they carved Russia out of the SWIFT system, that I think put a lot of global central banks on alert because it then was a signal that um, the West was willing to use the monetary system as a lever to exert control, political control. Selective default, basically, right? So when you think about being selectively defaulted on by the U.S. government on your treasuries, all of a sudden you start to think about, wait a second, are my assets mine or are they, where are they held again? Yeah, if you're a non-cooperative state, then conceivably the treasury could shut down uh, interest payments or fail to redeem the value of the coupons or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. So it definitely is used as a political lever. And then the other... um areas of influence that I see that I think tend to confuse people. So I, I definitely see gold as having this unique property for periods of duress and uh, uh, political turmoil. But all things equal, when that's calm, what you end up seeing is a correlation between the gold price and real returns. And I think that the way gold has moved in the last... Real rates, you mean? Real rates, sorry. Thank you. Um, the way gold has moved in the last two to three years has confused a lot of people post 20, uh, mm. 2020 during COVID because you saw kind of a, a thrust up. Then you saw demand pull inflation on the commodity front while gold flatlined. And now it's been affected mostly by geopolitical and, and real returns, right? So what you tend to see is as real rates go down gold appreciates which makes sense mm-hmm. right you're not getting it's your, your your real money isn't giving you any real returns you go to gold as real rates go up as they have been this is this is the confusing part right as rates went up and the fed was actually willing to pay you more for your cash reserves gold went down so there is that correlation between those two things that i think oftentimes confuse people and then the third uh, point of discussion i was in toronto the other day with a mining friend and he was completely baffled by why gold was doing well, but the gold miners were not. Mm. And again, that's t- going back to gold miners, even the ETF, a diversified set of gold miners, you have to disaggregate the actual physical underlying metal and the business that they're running. And what that means, if you're in a negative economic growth shock and there's less people doing business, you are going to get hit in the operating revenues. So, so those are kind of... Th- in the areas of gold, I think, levers that people need to understand 
so that they can translate what's going on with the price of gold. And it's not just geopolitical. It's not just real rates. Uh, and especially when you bring in the gold miners, you got to take into account the fact that it's not a pure play. It's stock beta. It, it is yeah. stock beta and it's levered, it's levered on their cash flow. You couldn't, you couldn't get people to the mines during COVID? Like the, there was a mining a human shortage of, mm. of um, you know, work for, workforce. There are all kinds of fun stuff that happens when you're operating a business. I think <laughs> also it's worth mentioning that, I mean, gold has failed to make new highs. Well, it just recently made well, a very quick though? new high, right? <laughs> but it's made new highs in virtually every other currency except for the U.S. dollar, right? We're sort of just wait, waiting for that that secular breakout in U.S. dollar terms. Um, the, the, I guess people are still maintaining sufficient faith in the Fed's mandate to preserve the value of the currency. And, um, and be able to well, pay it back in dollars that are worth That's while. right, and they aren't nearly as certain about other central banks. Well, inflation is much higher in other countries than it is in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. has done more to curtail inflation than European countries. They stopped early. That's true, but also the some of the other countries are not as strong economically, so they can't afford to raise rates sufficiently despite the fact that they've got these, this high inflation, so they're still at negative real rates, whereas the U.S. economy was sufficiently strong to raise rates above the rate of inflation and, and uh, therefore protect the value of the currency. So it's, um, it's definitely been an interesting couple of years from that perspective. But again, it just speaks to, as a diversifier, what it's diversifying against, right? We are, there's a lot of confusion about what inflation is. It's a lot of things. And gold does protect a certain portion of inflation. It's devaluation of the currency. Versus other types of inflation, like when COVID, when COVID hit and we had supply lines be hit and we had a lot of demand because there was a lot of money in our pockets. That was a demand of goods at a time where there wasn't enough supply. So commodities and other things are going to help you mm -hmm. in that environment and not necessarily gold. So just too many people give up on it because they feel it's supposed to be one thing and it doesn't. So I'm out. You know, that's a feature, not a bug, I think, that so many people miss, right? The fact that gold doesn't trade in the, for the same reasons and in the same direction at the same time as other commodities. That's why it's such a unique diversifier. And I mean, if the golden rule, so to speak, of um, portfolio theory is you want to find as many truly uncorrelated, diversifying um, asset classes as you can and hold them in the right balance in your portfolio. That's diversification, right? And that's why gold is, I think, so strangely underappreciated. It really is completely different. I like the way Don Cox characterized gold as the only asset that is no one else's liability. Right. And it really does serve that purpose, right? When you have some, you know, any sort of debt deflation or, um, you know, Japan explicit, the Bank of Japan explicitly said, we are going to sacrifice the value of the yen, and the benefit of gold is that it's a stable denominator against all currencies, right? And so, you know, gold exploded higher against the yen. The yen fell in value also against the U.S. dollar because the U.S. dollar is still considered to be stable. But at some point, it could very well be that um, the Fed has to decide between having, you know, saving the fiscal situation of, of the U.S., or defending the currency, and you can't do both. That's what happened in Japan, and we may very well come to that in, in other jurisdictions. In South America. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs>
So let's explore as to why, uh, when you think about asset allocation, there isn't a lot of demand for anything outside of financial assets. And and I think the the main point is the fact that people see that you get an, a return on risk for equities. There is a yield that there's a dividend. There's a return on bonds with whatever yield, a real return that we've seen historically. And the question really is, I think in most allocators' minds, is why would I allocate to golden commodities that do not that don't seem to provide any sort of cash flow? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why people stop at equities and bonds. Mm. What do you have any thoughts on that? Does anybody here have any thoughts on that? Well, first, I would say it, it a little bit is of where you are in stopping there. Right? We just talked about South America. Um, if you're in India, obviously, there's a huge culture of uh, accumulating gold as an asset, whether that it's a little bit different. I think it's more jewelry oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there is there are specific and different cultural differences, I think, across various cultures in the world. But when you start to talk about the most hyper-financialized um, economies of the world, you start to see, I think, exactly what you're saying is that there's this, what's the cash flow connection? Um, and then you get into a situation where you had a long disinflationary period that you know, didn't have a lot of inflation, that you saw opportunities for globalization that um, um, enhanced the profits that were coming from those businesses enhanced the ability for bonds to both pay their interest, but also have a falling, predominantly falling interest rate. And so during that regime, you have this sort of um, the perfect storm for those stocks and bonds that are cash flow oriented assets. And so you do end up having a habit in those areas, in those financialized areas to say, well, yeah, let, why would I have gold? It's been nothing but something that's been an albatross around the portfolio. Barbarous relic, right? Yeah. When, when none other than Warren Buffett says that nobody should own this, the barbarous relic, then, I mean, you can certainly figure out why many people have shunned it over the years. I want to be respectful of your time, too, because we're no problem. past. Yeah, we've got a couple more minutes, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, it does serve a unique role in portfolios and, and, um, but I also, yeah, to your point, hypergeometric discounting, people just have very short memories. What's done well lately? What has hurt me lately? And, you know, you, you chase, chase the hot asset. What's ironic, of course, is that, you know, gold has sort of quietly crept higher, um, delivered returns, you know, somewhere between stocks and bonds. Commodities over the long term, if anything, have, have been a bit more questionable in terms of their um, real return value. But gold has steadily preserved value and actually delivered returns above the rate of inflation, even in U.S. dollars. So um, it is a bit of a mystery why it's not more widely held in, in portfolios. Well, I just think the link in terms of logical connection to why it would give us an excess return or any sort of cash flow mm. is missing there. Well, and I think, yeah, because it's it's a deep risk that, that only sort of manifests once every 70 or 80 years. Not enough cycles to give it, you know, statistical or quantitative basis. You can't get a look, sort of look historically and say, well, you know, gold does well. Look at the correlation between gold's big spikes and other asset classes. How many big spikes have we had in gold? You know, like they, they happen at, they typically happen during 
forced currency devaluations or coordinated currency devaluations among many developed economies, that sort of thing, right? So because of the sort of spiky nature of the risk that it protects against, I think it's it's hard for people to price. So Mark, what is the... um... When when it comes to to gold production on a given year, what percentage of new gold are we pulling out? Do you know them? I don't know that number. Me? No, I don't. I don't know that number offhand, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, because I wonder if when you, what's important here is real return on any asset, and if productivity is outstripping the amount of gold that we can produce, then that would generally it's a vanishingly small percentage. Um, I think it's sub 2%. That's produced. And yes, some of that does go into manufacturing. Activities above that, then that would create a deflationary asset that would increase its price. It would just, a smaller amount would purchase more from a a just pure productivity perspective. And that could be the estimation for a real return. And then above and beyond that, if there's outsized returns from a nominal basis, it it is connected to geopolitical risk. And... uh, and inflating away a currency, right? So if we can make those links, then, you know, from a portfolio theory perspective, I think we can get more people on board. But there's, I'm sure, many things written about that and more that we can... Well, I mean, Dalio's quip famously is you, if you don't own gold, you either don't understand economics or history. I mean, it's, it's a quip, but it has, I think there's some, you know, germ of uh, knowledge in that. Yeah, and just to reiterate, even, let's assume that it doesn't. Let's remember that there is a there's a yield that you can extract from non-correlated volatile assets just from simply rebalancing. And we wrote a paper called Optimal Commodities that gets into the types of yields that you can achieve from non-returning commodities simply because they're different and they, and and you um, at different timescales. We kind of go through I think daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly. And you will see yields just purely from rebalancing between 0.5 and up to 4%. So <laughs> that's another area that's just pure entropy and mathematics that is just too difficult for people to comprehend, right? So again, gold plays an important role. And I'm glad we were able to sit down and talk about it today. Yeah, no, glad you guys came in. Thanks for sharing your Thank ideas. Thank you so much for hosting. It's yeah. quite a... Quite a place to have a podcast. I think people should remember, if you don't know the serial number on your bar, it's not your bar. (laughs) (laughs) But you don't don't have to memorize it. Yeah, exactly. We'll take care of that for 27, what is that? How many? uh, 12 words or whatever. 12 words. So where can people find more info on you and on SWP? Sure. Sure. SWPCayman.com is the website. I'm on Twitter. I I don't have that many followers. I don't tweet that often. Uh, You know, if if you didn't say that, no one would know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But uh, you can find me at Yaxley Yaks on Twitter. Try to spell that. If you can Yaxley spell that, that's probably why I don't have a lot of followers. Yeah. Nobody can and spell you it. But do like have that. programs in the U.S. for uh, qualified accounts to buy gold as well, don't you? Yeah, we have a few uh, kind of secondary offerings. People can own gold in their IRAs. Uh, not enough Americans know about that. Not nearly enough really? Canadians. So in, an, in a registered account in Canada, too, yeah. you can actually yeah. own physical. I thought you would have to go through some of the physical fund ownership no, folks. No, you can buy uh, gold and silver produced by the Royal Canadian Mint uh, in your for your RSPs or TFSAs in Canada, in your IRAs in the States. Actually, we store IRA gold here in the Cayman Islands, believe it or not. So there's a, a few interesting ways that you can work it into your portfolio. Not Irish Republican Army, just to be clear. <laughs> that we know of.
<laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for uh, letting us thanks, come into your vault. That this is a real treat, and we hope to do cool. it again. You know, sometime yeah. next year. Yeah, you guys are welcome back. Anytime. Oh, Christmas edition. Yeah, yeah. every Christmas. Christmas. Merry, merry. Had a drink, everyone. Thank you for listening. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.